Welcome to Ag in Conversation, where Emily and Mavanway, two friends and agri-optimists from Otago, New Zealand, sit down weekly to digest the hottest topics in the world of ag, bringing a deeper level of discussion and understanding to the issues and opportunities faced by agriculture and rural communities both in New Zealand and around the globe. Afternoon, Mavanway, how are you going? I'm good, thank you. How are you going? How's your morning been? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, pretty um, pretty standard over here. How have you guys been going this week? Uh, yeah, good. It's been the back-to-school week for the girls and popping them into hostel, which has been all sorts of emotions. And then this morning we've had hair tests, so quite busy, to be honest. Yeah, it does sound like you've been a lot more busy than us over this side of the hill. Is hair testing going well? Uh, yeah, I think so, pretty much. If you don't get too many double-ups and uh, everyone gets through the shed and we get a sample from everyone that's successful we'll find out um or oh, probably next week now well, how they're all going it's quite it's quite good actually it's a good check-in to see that you're not carrying any um freeloaders and then we can turf them out pregnancy testing in two weeks so between those two bits of information anyone who's not pulling their weight will be out of here no that's good perfect nice and efficient um tell you what else has been going on this week and I mean, I think anyone who's been listening to any form of news has probably already heard it. So unless you're still offline and at the beach or the lake, you you probably know that James Shaw resigned from the leadership of the Greens party earlier in the week, um, which is a really interesting time, I guess, in politics. And I think James has been sitting, like he's done a, a lot of things while he's been... Um, in the Greens party which is coming up close to a decade um, and he was a big driver behind the Carbon Zero Act and as we know we're one of the first countries to have legislation in place that really means the Paris Agreement um, is is what we're working towards in a legislative form um, but what I probably wasn't quite so on top of um, and what was really interesting is how hard he pushed and worked to get the unanimous agreement of that act across parliament which i think what he he made a lot of compromises in that and um i think what he was really trying to do at the end of the day was ensure he had there was an enduring framework that did last across government changes and in time um and i think he's faced a lot of fire from all sides of the house on that you know from his own party um i think it's been sort of dubbed the bark without the bite um with you know there's no ramifications for not meeting targets but then other people you know say it's it pushed too far um and so i think really sort of when you get down to it um i don't know we've have we sort of in a way been a bit lucky with how this has gone like could it have been a lot worse and like what are we going to face do you reckon going forward with a new leader of the Greens party yeah it's quite interesting what you said there Emily because it is true he did have to work really really hard like it's you've got to take your hat off to him whatever your political views to get the whole of parliament to agree on anything is no mean feat and the fact that it's such a controversial issue as well and he managed to get so much of what he wanted across the line. Of course, we can be glad that he didn't get all that he wanted across the line because otherwise ag would be an ETS. 
Um, but still, there's some credit where credit's due. He worked really hard on that. And that's something I think we're going to have to work on a lot more over the next few years. We can only see with the election results that there's a, you know, it's not a two-party coalition anymore. And that's probably not the way things are going to go in the next 10 to 15 years. There's a lot more appetite from the public, I suppose, for um, those in parliament to actually work together. Uh, we can't keep just chopping and changing every time a government changes. So, yeah. Uh, as for what's coming next, mm, yeah, it could be interesting, couldn't it? Which way are they going to swing? Yeah, and I think something else, uh, you know, is Greens actually had their best election result yet, but they're still on the opposition. So I think mm. that also shows that, you know, there's a real division of the voter base in terms of what people want, I think. And even like within the Greens party themselves, it seems like there's such a variation with their voter base and it makes it really hard for the party to be unified um, and have a clear sense of vision. I think we kind of see that with their politics because it's sort of a question of who are the Greens? Like, you know, one minute they're talking about environment, next minute they're talking about social welfare. You know, it sort of keeps changing and going around in circles and it does create quite a lot of confusion, um, I think, with people, I think probably within their own voter base, but also within the wider society as well. Yeah, and um, I agree with you. If you asked me to really nail down what the Greens are about, I think you'd struggle. You've got your traditional views of them as, you know, the environmentalists, but I think it's a lot more than that now. I've got family members back home who all happily uh, vote Green. Um, it leads to some interesting conversations, I can tell you. But anyway... And their, and their drivers for voting green are a lot more around the social welfare side of things um, and just looking after those in need. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see who the next co-leader is and which track they head down. James was definitely very good at bridging that gap between the extreme left and the extreme eco-warriors, shall we say, and those moderate people out there who just, you know, want to ensure the best for the future of our children. Yeah, I think he did do a really good job at that. And, um, oh, yeah, I think he probably was really good to work with and to do business with. And I hope that going forward that that's the same outcome with whoever the new leader is because I think they kind of sit in that advocate part of government to ensure that, you know, whatever party is in main power is putting the environment forward in their policies which I think generally most people actually want it's just how that comes across in the written policy in the legislation um yeah I yeah. think um, the greens could probably learn quite a bit from agriculture and what agriculture is going through at the moment and and whether they want to be outside protesting uh everything that's happening and things they disagree with or they actually want to be at the table helping to build the solutions for the future. And I think they'll need to look long and hard at where they go forward on this to make sure they are at the table. Yeah, 100%. Um, totally agree. And I think at the end of the day, they're probably going to be more powerful if they are at the table versus are not at the table. Um, one of James's famous quotes um, was, political tribalism is, the, I believe, the greatest barrier to creating enduring solutions and the great challenges of our time um and i think i don't know if that's just very true really isn't it i um it's 
it's that case of we're getting lefter and we're getting righter and we're getting more segregated and it's more us v you and if you're not with us you're against us which I think at the end of the day one thing he's proven is that doesn't actually create enduring change that creates the sort of change that we're seeing now where one government puts in a whole lot of policy and then the next government comes in and throws all that policy out and in the meantime we don't actually achieve anything. Yeah, absolutely agree. You only have to look at the United States and everything that's going on there um, at the moment. And it's really sad that so much of it is just, it becomes your personality type, you know, you're a Democrat or Republican. Instead of which, you know, you could just be, hey, look, I'm a Kiwi who just wants the best for the future of my country, whichever way I vote. And yeah, I could think mm. we could do with a lot more cooperation because both sides always have good points, you know, no one's yeah. always right or always wrong. No, I totally agree. And I think... We sort of do end up with the best compromises when they do, both sides of the house do end up working together, which I think um, almost makes it more powerful. Yeah. And then you've got that assurance, like you were saying, that it isn't going to be overturned by the next government. You know, everyone's got buy-in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's like the second like sort of biggest piece of legislation that he probably was involved in was the Indigenous Biodiversity National Policy Statement. Um, and he kind of said out of that one that he said that he kind of got to a place where it was kind of dissatisfactory to everyone in equal measure. And like whilst that's a really tough measure of success, I think at the end of the day, it kind of is politics, isn't it? If you're upsetting everyone, you're probably kind of, in the middle creating that enduring change because no one's quite happy enough um and that's like the compromise piece yeah pretty tough place to be playing though it's a really tough place to play and as he said on an interview i saw last night on one news there wasn't a single day he didn't think about just jacking it all in so it takes a heck of a lot of determination to keep at that when as you say everyone is annoyed with you because you haven't covered off their bases yeah, absolutely. And I think he found that in the house, but also in the party. Like he probably wasn't really, I think one of the criticisms was he wasn't really green enough. Um, mm. And I heard on, earlier in the week, someone was tongue in cheeks asking if he was going to go start a teal party. <laughs> and I think he said 10 years <laughs> in pop was enough for He's me, probably... but yeah. He's probably um, had enough. Yeah, I was just going to say definitely had enough, I'd say. <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, that's quite interesting really and it'll be interesting to see um, what happens in the next couple of weeks as they work towards a new co-leader um, and there was a bit of chat about how the constitution of the Green Party has changed so now it has to be a woman and a Maori. It doesn't have to be um, a man and a woman was the original constitution so they've changed it so we could see two ladies leading the Green Party so um, that could be Chloe Swarbrick. So yeah, we're probably in for a little bit of change in the party and I wonder how that's going to um, influence the decisions made and also I guess they're in the opposition so they're just, a, you know, they are just trying to influence and get their points across but um, yeah, I think that'll be interesting to see how that plays out and also like, they could be in opposition for quite some time. There's national government typically have at least two terms um, and... So that could be six years of opposition um, and we see them kind of get all tactical around when leaders come in and things like that and to ensure that, you know, they're sort of fresh and known for the elections. So, yeah, it's um, it's going to be an interesting time as that kind of carries through in the next month or so. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who does end up in that in the hot seat, so to speak. Um, everything I've heard, Chloe is actually, despite you know having quite different politics to your average rural person, she's actually very good at listening and taking on board what others say and and searching for input and feedback. And I think being a younger woman, she doesn't probably bring that ego that often gets in the way in politics. Um, so she she might actually be not the worst option, shall we say. But we'll wait and see. Yeah. Because yeah, she has that persona, doesn't she, that she's quite urbanised, being central Auckland based, I think. Um, and so it doesn't come across that she's got great knowledge of what's going out on farm, but perhaps that gives us a really nice opportunity to influence. Yeah. Yeah, it might well do. We can at least talk to her. Um, but it'll mm. be interesting to see how her stance on the Israel-Palestine thing affects her bid, or if there is a bid. Or co-leadership. Mm, very true. Haven't put that one into the, the mix there. Yeah. Um, another kind of hot piece of policy that's thrown around, um, the second topic of our discussion today, sort of turning into a bit of a political episode really, but um, nonetheless, <laughs> we sort of um, heard at the end of last year, right on the eve of the election actually, National um, said you know, they were quite big on around making some changes to KiwiSaver. And it sort of started out with um, creating more choice for people and allowing people to invest their KiwiSaver with more than one provider, which would mean that you could put some of your money into like a higher risk, higher return investment um, and potentially open up to some new providers um, and then keep some of the money in a um, more low risk, probably lower return or, you know, less growth structured um investment which currently no one can do right and I think that's basic investment strategy don't put all your eggs in the same basket but the rules at the moment state that you've got one provider and then within them if they've got them you can choose the different funds but it doesn't allow you to really spread that risk quite far um, and then this alongside um, some discussion that Federated Farm has been working on for quite some years spurred on um, Todd McClay, the, who was who is now the Minister of Agriculture, but was this agricultural spokesperson at the time on the eve of the election, he told some farmers in Lawrenceville that a national-led government would let young farmers use their KiwiSaver as part of a deposit to buy a farm, share milking herd or a flock um, to help them get on the ownership ladder. So this is really interesting. Because currently, those who are working on farm and have accommodation provided um, don't have the same opportunities as their urban counterparts. So the rules for KiwiSaver at the moment is that it can be withdrawn in five circumstances. To buy your first home, if you're going to be permanently living in it, um, if you're permanently moving to a different country, so I'm not quite sure how they pass that test, uh, if you experience significant financial hardship, if you have a serious illness, and if you have a life-shortening congenital condition. So the main one that people are focusing on is to help buy your first home, which is all well and good for people living in town. They can easily get that money out and mm. buy their first home. Those living on farm, they also have the need, particularly as employees, to get on their property ladder and to build up some sort of investment, whether they want to go into business and farming or not because at some point or another they're going to need to probably live in their own home even if it's at just at retirement and it's well known that the earlier you buy a house and start paying off the mortgage you know the better you are so 
But because of that rule that you have to live in that house for at least six months as your permanent address, um, it really puts the brakes on people who are living on farm having that same opportunity, um, particularly those living incredibly remotely. Um, it just doesn't, it's just not, a, not an option at all. Um, and I think this brings about a really interesting point because um, there is a real division here and I think it's a point that's been missed and it means basically if you w want to buy your first home and use your KiwiSaver as a rural person, you potentially have to lie. Mm, and I think that's often what has happened in many circumstances where farming people have bought houses in the past, which isn't really great because it makes a bit of a mockery of the whole system. But at the end of the day, we do need a chance to get on the ladder. And, you know, personally, it would be wonderful to be able to put some of my KiwiSaver into a house that we would buy or, to be honest, in, in my circumstance, probably end up going down the, into the herd um, and building that up over the, over a few years. But it's just getting that leg up and it's getting increasingly harder, especially if you've already gone into the areas of contract milking, etc. You're probably better off to you'd probably be able to build a nest egg a lot better if you were a manager these days with the rates for managers versus contract milkers and share milkers. It's a lot harder. The margins are quite small. And in order to get enough of a nest egg to be able to get a 20% deposit in some cases for a house, even just a small house in your local town, yeah, it's difficult. And so here there's a huge shortage of housing in Kura or Duntroon. So both of those areas are higher cost housing. And so in that case, we would have to buy a house in Omaru and then commute 50K each day um, to get to both of our jobs. That's just one way. So, you know, you've done 100K and, and that's and you're still not at home. So, yeah, it, it's it's a difficult situation. I know plenty of people commute further in, in cities and etc but they have all the amenities close by them and the ability to just buy their own home and live in it so it's, it's really interesting there's also the issue of land as well and whether you could get a bit of land um and put a house on it too which is, is kind of a gray area with KiwiSaver at the moment good if they could do something about that as well yeah and i think it also like you say if you were to put the money in your herd um it just you but slowed down because you have this chunk of equity that you can't access and then with the interest rates at the moment, you're just paying thousands of dollars more than you would be paying if you'd been able to access that KiwiSaver um, and to be able to use that to, to get ahead, really. Um, and I think, I don't know, I think it's an interesting point, but do you think it's fair if, in, if um, rural people are able to buy a house to get ahead is that whereas urban people are living in it, they're still getting ahead, aren't they? Even though that the rural ones um, are renting their house out, does that make it? Is that fair? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and it is a difficult, it is a difficult thing. But if you look at it like this, our housing. So when I calculate the housing and the power and all the other benefits that my staff get every pay, that is taken out of their pay, so they're taxed on everything. It's a whole package deal. So. When you work in town, yes, you have to have, provide your own house and you have to provide your own electricity, but your pay package is therefore more cash in hand. So it works out, it swings and roundabouts, really, to be honest, on that mm -hmm. level. The only way I could see this getting niggly is if 
those in town wanted to start a building business, say, and why shouldn't they be able to access their KiwiSaver to set them up with a van or a ute and gear for that? Um, and there'll need to be some serious investigations into the barriers and the safety precautions set around the, this KiwiSaver um, edition. Because it's such a great idea. And to be honest, a lot of people in the rural area don't necessarily want to put money into KiwiSaver. I've had plenty of employees over the years who say, oh, why would I bother? I can put it into investments myself and get it out when I want. Or I can just save it up in the bank account and spend it. So I guess if we want people to be more engaged with KiwiSaver, this could be a good way. Yeah, and I always think, like you say, with the building, like, you know, if you're putting money into a herd or a flock, um, essentially that is helping you start a business, isn't it? So it's a little bit different, but it is a vehicle that the government can use to support succession in this high-value industry, which at the moment with land prices, with interest rates, is really, really tough to get into and as we know, the average age of farmers is increasing. So we've kind of got a big issue on our hands and maybe this is a something that the government can do to support that transition. That's actually a really valid point. Yeah, when you put it like that, we actually probably need to do something. It's, it's almost like subsidising people into farms without actually subsidising them in. We talked about subsidies last week um, and we don't want to go down that line. But yeah, giving people a helping hand to get them up into a farm and so that they can still get ahead. Because after all, if we don't have people moving forward, it's, it's only going to be a negative impact on the economy. Mm, yeah, I think when you look at it from that perspective, it's quite different. But like you say, there's going to have to be some strong boundaries to make it equitable because it does seem, um, in some cases, unfair for farmers to be able to start a business using their KiwiSaver, but then builders or anyone else really not being able to access them to do the same thing. Mm. And it's because it, I guess it's because it's asset based. So, you know, a truck and tools will depreciate. Mm. So that's where I'd gone around in circles doing that. They, those assets, the moment they come into your possession, they've depreciated probably by about half. But um, with the tools, but, you know, cows maintain their value, they're insured. Land maintains its value to a point mm. and it's insured and so is housing. So I guess that's the line they're going down. I guess that's how they're going to do it. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point, isn't it? It's a, it's a different, it's a capital asset rather than, um, yeah, rather than something that's going to depreciate and below the line. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's probably a fair way, isn't it, to look at it to make sure that it is equitable for everybody. Yeah, 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 and I think that's just it. So long as it's it's thought through properly and doesn't just rust your head as a sort of PR stunt type thing then I think it could be it would be really really amazing yeah I totally agree and also I was when I was doing some reading I think it's not just for people who want to start a business and buy a herd or buy a flock like there's a large number of farm employees that really enjoy being an employee and you know they can see that in 10 20 30 40 years time they're going to need to retire um, and because they've been living on provided accommodation, rented accommodation for that long, they aren't going to have a mortgage that's been paid off, but they're going to need a house. So I think mm. in that situation, it still makes sense to be able to buy a house in town and put renters in it. So at least you're kind of equal to those that have been working um, and living in their own home for that time. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree with you more. I, I think it's a very easy way for someone to slip through to get, and, and we know this is really common with women, especially get through to that 50, 60 years old and suddenly find out you're left with nothing and there's nothing set for you for retirement because you haven't set things in place, but this could be a good way to help people out. Yeah, I agree. Well, I guess it's just going to be a wait and see um, with this policy. I haven't seen the new government discuss it. Obviously, they're still in their 100 days. Um, but I think if it is something probably of interest, people could talk to their local MP and um, keep pushing it along. Yeah, yeah, I think you know, there's a few people, num names who spring to mind. But, you know, Mark Patterson probably be a good place to start because he's in charge of rural communities. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the other people, I know feds have been driving this for a long time. So reaching out to those local representatives and make, just seeing what's going on behind the scenes there is probably also a good place to start if it does, is really important to you and your personal circumstances. So the final thing that we were quite keen to talk about today is a bit different, isn't it? Maybe in way we, um, on the 15th of February, 1882, the first, uh, frozen shipment of lamb left the port of Otago um, destined for London so um, this is pretty like um, monumental and even creating the food industry that we have today and at the time refrigerated container travel was sort of just just coming in um, and it, it really set up basically the industry. So what happened is um, in 1882, 5,000 carcasses of lamb went on a ship um, and travelled to London. Um, and obviously that really set us up now for the industry that we've got today um, and also some of the networks and connections. And the um, Ag Proud, who are a group, they have... Um, really taken over the National Lamb Day and they've moved National Lamb Day from May which was the date that the, the ship arrived in London to the 15th of February which is the date that the ship left New Zealand um, and brought it forward and it's going to be celebrated um, by around the role that um, it's had in building the primary sector and the food systems and so it's been really um, celebrated across the ecosystem farmers supporting industries um, across the supply chain, chefs, retailers, and of course the consumers. Um, and it's a sort of three, gonna be held a three day event really, parliament, um, southern field days, and then there's gonna be some barbecues and all of this and some of New Zealand's main centers, which is pretty um, exciting really. Go have some lamb on the barbie um, to celebrate National um, Lamb Day. It's pretty iconically New Zealand, isn't it? Um, well, if ever so, there was a day that had your name all over it, Emily, this was it, wasn't it? <laughs> when you told yeah, me this is what of... you wanted to talk about, <laughs> I was like, oh, of course, we've got to get Lamb back in today. <laughs> it's been a bit of a reoccurring theme, hasn't it, so far in this podcast? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Everyone, yeah, do a shot every time Emily mentions Lamb. Uh, no, don't, please. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, all seriousness, what a great idea, eh? How, how about that? Like, get out and celebrate and... and consume some lamb we've all heard so much about how hard it's been for the producers this year um and why not give them a, a moral boost and hopefully a bit of a boost in the pocket if everyone goes out and buys some extra bits of lamb to consume over that weekend um 
nobody's going to complain about having that on the barbecue. And as we learned last week, it brings the generations together. So who knows? Invite all your family around for a bit of a barbecue. Have a good good weekend of it. Um, but I really hope that it can get some good pickup in the media and it gets a really nice positive spin and a good story for ag. It's easy for these things to get overshadowed by other things that are going on. And I hope that the barbecue they're having in Parliament is focused just on celebrating the farmers and the producers and what was achieved all those years ago um, and keeps steers away from any hot topics and we can just actually enjoy the day and celebrate what all those great farmers are doing out there. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think um, that's really what this day is about, is about celebrating all parts of the supply chain, um, acknowledging the past and, and the present and creating connection between people um, over a nice piece of lamb. And I think it's quite iconically New Zealand really, isn't it? You know, um, in terms of when you think of a, we don't, because we're so young, we don't really have that cultural food as such. But I think if you were to say one, it'd probably be a roast lamb, really, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, what we knew from New Zealand back home, when, when I was back in the UK, it was always the All Blacks lamb and butter. And so, yep. Best. <laughs> so there we are. That goes out on the world stage. We all know how good your lamb is. Uh, used to drive all yeah. the British farmers mad. Um, but no, it's so cool. And it's got a bit of a local connection to North Otago because some of that la a lot of that lamb that was in that first shipment was produced here in North Otago. Like I mentioned last week, North Otago used to be just a very dry area with lots of sheep. So yeah, it's important we celebrate those roots that we have. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you want to get behind... Um, the team, they've got a t-shirt um, that they're using to raise some money to support the day. Um, we'll put the link in the show notes. It's very cool. Um, and Beef and Lamb on their website, they have a list of all the events that are going on around the country that people can get in behind. So if you want to know what's happening in the local your local neck of the woods, um, it'll be on the Beef and Lamb website. And if otherwise, if you're down at the Southern Field Days, be sure to pop in and see the team. Yeah, and if you are out just at home celebrating and, and doing something creative with your lamb on the barbecue or perhaps smoking it or something like that, something a bit different, don't forget to take some photos, pop them up and tag us in it so we can see how you're enjoying lamb. Thanks for joining us as we chewed the fat on what is front of mind in the ag world this week. We look forward to sharing next week's episode with you. Head to our socials and let us know what you think. We welcome all feedback and would love suggestions on what you want us to dive into next. If you enjoyed the episode, we would really appreciate if you showed your support by sharing, liking and rating our podcast. It really helps us reach new listeners. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.